Folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. Marching onward, indeed, as March is the last month of the first quarter of 2022. Time is going by like a fart in the wind, friends and neighbors. Tick tock, tick tock, the clock of time ticks for us all. Life is not a sliding scale, folks. You are either moving forward in liberty and freedom in your own life by taking proactive actions or the march of time and the march of that which is around you is leaving you behind and pushing you backwards. You have to be proactive if you want to even maintain the level of freedom that you have in your life. And I'm not happy maintaining it. I have a pretty free life with everything that I've built with TSPC, it's not enough. I, I know that you have to advance. You have to advance to stay put, but you also have to advance in actual freedom. If you don't do that, you will find yourself becoming complacent, and you will allow the world to seal your fate. Don't do it. Every time you think about not doing a thing that you know needs to be done, please, let you, let you just let my voice play in your head. Tick tock. Tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. Please, you owe it to your family and to the, the, the family you'll never know, your great-grandchildren. Make the most of your dash. With that, I have a great freaking show for you guys today. Expert Council Q&A show, because it is a Thursday. In the Ron Paul Liberty Highlights, I have Why Americans Should Not Accept War as a Replacement for COVID. That from Ron Paul himself. Dan McAdams will say that Ukraine and NATO was a clear red line for Russia, so why did the United States push it? And Chris Rossini will talk about how we move from one ripoff to the next, all powered by fear. My anchor segment, as you'll hear in just a moment, will tie back into all of those. Derek Bonpietro answers a question on an older CUCV, a CUV. As a project vehicle, Nick Ferguson talks about planting and growing trees among established other trees. Nicole Sauce will talk about being a responsible dog owner. And I, th I know if I just leave it there, you'll be like, okay, that's like, you know, make sure you take care of your dog and make sure that you train your dog. But what about when it gets hard? What about when you get to a point where you don't know what to do about a problem? What if it gets expensive? You know, I, I look at dogs. We bring them into our home. We make a commitment for the lifetime of that animal. So does Nicole. So this is an interesting thing where you have an expert council member saying, I'm not an expert on this problem, and here's how I reached out to an expert and took responsibility for a situation I'm dealing with. I think it was a great segment. Chef Keith Snow will talk about cooking freshwater fish like crappie and bass other than simply rolling it in cornmeal and deep frying it. I'll have an addition on that one, as you might imagine. And how to handle business... When the calls and the work slow down, Tim Toolman Cook. And then I've got an honest question for you, and I put out different flavors of it in various polls on social media. I haven't even checked in yet. I'll check in right as I begin my segment and maybe use some of what I've learned there uh, in asking this question in a poll format. Why do people implicitly trust known malevolent liars? Now, you might think, oh, he's talking about like in your personal life. No, I'm talking about what's in our face right now. I'm talking about known malevolent liars in the form of the United States government 
and all of its organizations and NGOs around it and the mainstream media, and yes, I'm including things like Fox News, just because they're on the right side of the fake political spectrum doesn't give them a pass. For two years, we've been lied to by all these people about McCovades. And now, it seems that even people who knew they were being lied to right from the beginning about McCovades are implicitly trusting our government in regards to this foreign war. And when I do this segment, I want to clear some things up. When I tell you Russia's perspective on what's going on, I am not telling you Russia and Putin are right. I'm telling you you're not getting the freaking entire story, and hence, maybe we should keep our opinions to ourselves and stay out of other parts of the world. If you don't respect my opinion on that, because I'm just a lowly redneck duck farmer, remember... First lead-off segment today is Dr. Ron Paul, two-time presidential candidate, served in the United States Congress for over two decades. Trust his opinion on it. We agree on this. Non-intervention is generally the best policy in most situations. And I would add to that, can you tell me a place since World War II that we intervened that is better off for it? While you're thinking on that, let's move on into this and... Uh, I'll start out before I introduce Ron with um, a quote that I picked today. We'll go with my anchor segment. We'll kind of prime the pump here, and then we'll come back to it at the end. Charles Charles Pugoy, I think that's how you spell it. It's a French name. I don't speak French. P-E-G-U-I. It would be like P-Guy, right? I don't think that's his name. Pugoy once said, He who does not bellow the truth when he knows the truth Makes him the makes himself the accomplice of liars and forgers. Oh wow! And this guy was a socialist poet. He was also a nationalist at the turn of the nineteenth into the twentieth century. Whoa, whoa! Yeah, you know, I think he meant his, he believed his own words. I'll tell you a little thing about him. So he started off with that ideology. He ended up becoming politically agnostic and a believing but not practicing Catholic by the end of his life. He who does not bellow the truth when he knows the truth makes himself the accomplice of liars and forgers. I had never heard that until today, but I already innately deeply believed it, which is why I and others did not shut up for the last two-plus years as we were being lied to. And I want to prime the pump again for my segment I'll come to at the end today. Why do people implicitly trust known malevolent liars and fail to bellow the truth when they know the truth and make themselves the accomplice of liars and forgers? Good lead-in, too, to Ron Paul's segment. Here we go. We'll hear in order Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams, and then Chris Rossini. Okay, we're uh, not going to talk about COVID. COVID's over and done with. We're never going to see it again. They'll never have another pandemic. It's been erased from the pages of history. (laughs) And it's always a bad dream. Yeah, Yeah, it is. A bad dream. I just think of the people, even today, we still see the stories of the uh, consequence of totally innocent people dying from the medications. Yeah. Well, anyway, we've gone over that a lot. We we want to prevent this little war that's going on over there in Ukraine because uh, we don't need that war. <laughs> and uh, so far, our politicians are smart enough to say, 
well, you know, this is the time we should practice non-intervention. We should just mind our own business, stay out of the affairs, save all the money, don't kill anybody, and uh, everything would be much better off. It wouldn't solve all the problems, but somebody's arguing over there, but that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's an internal fight. Let the two neighbors fight it out and decide what happens. But that's not the case because uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how we are involved. You know, the president, last night, though, he was very adamant because he knows it's a good political statement. We will not be sending troops over there to fight Russian troops. Uh, yeah. And, you know, over the history of this country, we've heard that statement before, before you knew it, our troops were fighting other troops. And it doesn't even take a declaration of war. The presidents just decide to send them. And uh, that, that happens. Well, anyone arguing for a no-fly zone, and there are a lot of crazy experts uh, around arguing for it. Anyone arguing for it? has literally no idea what it is and they should shut up because for a no-fly zone to happen as we know from when they've been in, in, uh, put in place you have to take out all threats that would mean that the united states military would have to knock out russian s-400 and s-500 um, missiles inside russia because that's where the threats from you're going to prevent them from flying you would have to bomb russia that would start world war three and it would be the end of the world so anyone talking about it is literally not a serious person, but sadly, it's the unserious people who are getting the most time on the news these days. But we want to talk a little bit about a great article written by Caitlin Johnstone. She spoke at one of our conferences and put on that first clip so people can look for it. She's on Medium, uh, and she makes this great point. Experts warned for years that NATO expansion would lead to this. People like the late uh, Professor Stephen Cohen, who we had on our show before, brilliant, brilliant scholar, sadly passed away. For years and years, they've been saying NATO expansion is a problem, and it doesn't give us anything. George Kennan, you mentioned him the other day, Dr. Paul. Here's what he said to the U.S. Senate back in 1998 when they were first talking about NATO expansion. He said, I think this is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There's no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. Of course there's going to be a bad reaction from Russia. George Kennan, the father of containment, one of the great real politic thinkers. The next one is our current CIA director, William Burns, who was considered uh, one of the rare experts in government. Here's a 2008 memo he sent to then Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. So this is our current CIA director. Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines for the Russian elite, not just Putin. I have yet to find anyone who views NATO, uh, Ukraine and NATO as anything other than a direct challenge to Russian interests. That's, that's just a red flag. That's right, Dr. Paul. And uh, as you all know, the first casualty in war is the truth. And boy, you know, we just went through two solid years of COVID lies. Now we're transitioning back to war lies. And, you know, we're talking about the economic aspects of it, and it's very not, it's not very hard to see. I mean, look over the last two years, look at Big Pharma, how they raked in billions and billions of dollars, uh, you know, with government force. And we're just switching back now to the kings of cronyism, and that's the military contractors. They already, you know, take us for almost a trillion dollars a year just, you know, as a matter of course. One could imagine that a trillion is not going to be enough to do whatever they think they need to do. And all of this cronyism, it destroys 
productive economic activity. All these resources are allocated to these things uh, versus the things that we actually would want in a market economy. And there's tremendous waste. You know, the military waste is legendary in the military. But we also saw with what we just went through, the vaccine waste. Governments spent our tax money buying all of these vaccines, and now the vaccines are collecting dust, you know, because people don't need them and they don't want them. But the big pharma got paid, so if they collect dust and go in the trash, our money went to them nevertheless. So it, this is the system we live in, and they just go back and forth, whether it's Wall Street or the military or Big Pharma. They just take turns in ripping us off. They're different actors, and they just get their couple of years in, and, and, and they're off. You know, And the only way to stop this, it's very hard for most people, is to stop believing them. But they're very, very good at scaring you into believing them. So, you know, but look at how COVID ended. When did it stop? And people, they just don't believe it anymore. So, but again, at the very least, for you and your family, just stop believing what the cronies and the media and the government are putting in your face every single day. I usually love to do an additional commentary after that segment. It is so close to what I have to say at the end today. I'm going to bite my tongue, shut up for now, and I'll be back, and I will probably invoke some of the brilliant analysis, especially uh, Chris Rossini there at the end. It's almost like we are in thought twin mode this week, but I'll bring it to you a little bit in a different flavor at the end, I promise. Let's talk about something a little more proactive. Let's say that you're looking around at some older military surplus vehicles, you're looking at these kind of one-ton blazers and pickups and thinking, that would be cool. Maybe I could get one of those and fix it up, and I'll have a super-duper military-style vehicle. It'll be a good farm truck or whatever. I'm going to let Derek uh, talk to you about this. I'm going to listen very intently to what he has to say, because I don't know yet. I haven't heard it. And then I'm going to come back with some of my thoughts, having worked in the military uh, as a mechanic. And even though I was a heavy-wheel mechanic, meaning I worked on vehicles much larger than cut Vs, when I got to my first permanent duty station... Uh, in Panama, we were one of the last places to get Humvees. So when I got there, the deal was we had to make all these shitty-ass Cutvees as perfect as they could be at our level of maintenance before we sent them to be junked or turned over to the National Guard that was going to totally trash them. So we had to spit-shine turds. And that's given me maybe a little different view of the Cutvee, than a lot of other people. So let's see what Derek has to say on this one. What is up, TSP listeners? Derek here from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a question from Thunderhawk about some trucks, so let's get into it. I have a question for the expert council. Not sure who, but a car guy for sure. I'm interested in the old-school Cuckvies or Chevy Blazer-esque trucks, 60s and 70s. What's the difference and what's better? More info, I'm 50 and saw the old Blazers and Cuckvies in my teens and early 20s. Love the look of them and the idea, no circuit boards in the older ones. I'm all, among all the other crap on my plate, I am interested in a project vehicle that will be a work vehicle on my farmish homestead when done. The basics, local use only on gravel roads with some highway usage, not more than an hour or so distance. Off-road, but not extreme, just off the gravel road. Grass and mud, I'm too old to rock climb with this thing. Ease of maintenance, the less electronics, the better. Enclosed, not a pickup. I already have a Toyota Tundra for long haul and expensive repairs. 
I think an expert council member talked about these once before, but I don't remember the episode. Thanks, Jack. Thunderhawk. All right, so let's break it down. So Thunderhawk did a great job of describing what he needed and basically made it very easy for me to kind of narrow this down because sometimes when you go, hey, I need a vehicle, and then I go, uh, okay, and I start taking some you know shots in the dark because I don't know the exact usage, the era you're looking for, the budget, etc. So great job. And you're looking probably at the right set of vehicles. Anything that's going to be probably 90s era and older are going to be relatively simple to work on. And even if it's carbureted or fuel injected, the fuel injected vehicles from that era are still very basic. When you look at the circuitry and stuff like that, you know, there's not a whole lot going on. So you're talking about like it's the processing power of a calculator for these things. There's, there's not a lot of sensors. They're very basic to work on. So I wouldn't be so afraid of quote-unquote electronics, things in the 80s and 90s, when they have, you know, electronics, there's not a lot of it. It's not like you need a scan tool to work on it. There's nothing proprietary or complex. You know, basically, if it's electronic, it's going to be very simple to troubleshoot with a basic voltmeter or a test light. So I wouldn't be too worried about that. Now, when we're talking 90s, you're going to get an overdrive transmission typically, so that means you can tool down the highway and still keep up with traffic that's doing 75, 85 miles an hour these days. Uh, when you start to go into the 80s or earlier, unless you've modified it yourself, it's going to have typically a three or four speed, three speed automatic, four speed manual with no overdrive. And depending on what kind of gears that came with it, you could be 55 miles an hour limited, meaning that if you want to go faster and try to keep up, you're going to rev the engine like crazy and probably not going to be detrimental for long-term usage. You're probably just going to be more annoyed with it and it's going to start sucking some fuel down pretty fast. So just keep that in mind when you're shopping around. Now, the Cuck Vs you're talking about, so these were based on an 83 Chevy platform and they made a Blazer, which is a half-ton chassis, 6.2 diesel, turbo 400 automatic, so three-speed, 208 transfer case, and then half-ton axles, and those had 308 axle gears. So you can actually drive those pretty quick down the road. When I say pretty quick, I mean slow as hell. Not going to be jumping out in front of traffic because you're talking maybe 160 horsepower, but at least you could probably get it up to speed and, and not be revving the, you know, not be revving the engine up really badly. But that's, that's the SUV of the Cuck V. The other ones are going to be pickup truck, ambulance, service body, um, platforms and those are based on a one ton pickup truck with much lower gears and 55 miles an hour is just about redline on that so since you were looking at an suv style vehicle you're going to be limited to just the blazer style suv body style that's really the only thing that's in the cuck v variant if you're looking across the board you've got a lot of different options domestic and foreign both compact and full size so when you're going back into the 60s and 70s you're talking you know, Ford Bronco, Dodge Ram Charger, Chevy Blazer. Those are going to be all the two-door SUV variants. And it's going to be a full-size truck platform, but two doors. And if you go with the Bronco and the Blazer, uh, you got a removable top as well, which is pretty cool, but you may not be interested in that. If you're looking at foreign stuff, that vintage, that old, you're looking at Land Cruiser. And, uh, yeah, I'd say if it's probably not rotted out into the ground and it's drivable, it's probably going to be worth a fortune just because Land Cruisers get crazy money. So you're probably not going to be looking at one of those. Uh, the full-size trucks, you know, they're going to be very basic. Carburetor, if you go back really old, points ignition, but 
I would say most of those probably were swapped at some point to electronic or they're going to have electronic emission from the factory. So very basic. The emission systems on them when you start getting into the 70s uh, really suck because there's lots of vacuum hoses, big catalytic converters, blah, blah, blah. But honestly, most of those have probably been removed at some point. So these are pretty basic trucks. I think that's probably what you're looking at. I would say if you're comfortable working on something that has a carburetor and, you know, that's going to be more of pliers and screwdrivers instead of voltmeters and test lights, um, you know, have at it. You said you don't have to get up to highway speed, so I don't think it's going to matter if it has an overdrive transmission. So honestly, that's those types of vehicles are probably going to fit what you're looking for. Now, the price, I think it's going to depend. Pricing on you stuff is astronomical right now so i think if you get something for maybe five or ten thousand dollars and it's rust free honestly any mechanical things that need to be sorted out are going to be relatively straightforward and cheap i mean you're talking about an engine maybe costing fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars for a long block complete transmission you know a three-speed automatic transmission probably going to be five hundred dollars to rebuild it if you were to buy one off the shelf already remanned ready to go i don't think you're into a thousand dollars I mean, sure, you got to pay somebody to replace it, but what I'm getting at is that everything on those vehicles is cheap. So if you handed me a shell that said, uh, engine, transmission, and axles don't work, you can probably put one together for not that much money and have the thing up and running. Now, when you get into the 80s and the 90s, things do get a little more complicated. Now, the bonus is that electronics back then, if they're working... They work just fine. Now, if they break, you might have to dig around for replacement parts, but they're usually still available. So if you said, hey, I've got an 87 or 92, whatever, and it needs a computer, dude, you can jump on Rock Auto and have one in probably two, three days or Amazon or whatever. So there, there's nothing there that's going to scare me and go, oh, wow, you're not going to be able to service this thing if, if a part fails. So I'm not worried about that. You're going to get overdrive transmissions, electronic fuel injection, and it's really going to have the, the drivability of a modern vehicle, meaning you get in, flip the key, fire it up 80 miles an hour down the highway with air conditioning, no problem. Now, a lot of that's going to depend on what condition the vehicle's in. So I don't know where you're located, Thunderhawk, but if you're buying one uh, northeast or something like that, it's going to be probably a rust bucket, and you're talking gas tank, brake lines, rocker panels, all that fun stuff that basically anything that's five years old or older is going to need. It doesn't matter what vintage it is, but... Facebook, Marketplace, eBay, Craigslist, whatever your cup of tea is, track one down. I would probably be looking, you know, out west, down south, outside of the Rust Belt. And I'd say if the body style fits, you like the color, the interior, blah, 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 whatever. You want a four-cylinder Japanese truck like a Toyota or a Nissan, or you want a big V8 American truck, you know, whatever floats your boat. Cool. I don't think you can go wrong with any of them. I think a lot of it's going to boil down to what condition are you buying it in and how much work does it need to have in order to be serviceable, meaning you're not going to have constant breakdowns. And that's a lot of maintenance going through from one end to the other, you know, belts, hoses, timing belts, or full tune-up, carburetor needs to be rebuilt, or maybe the injection needs to be cleaned out with some new injectors, you know, all the fluids, shock absorbers, all the bushings, you know, sway bar bushings, leaf springs, blah, blah, blah. You know, once you go through it from one end to the other, you're probably going to have a fairly serviceable vehicle and no major foreseen breakdowns. I do have a Cuck V. It's an 84 M1031, which is a generator service truck. And I bought that for about six grand, probably spent another two or three in upgrades and maintenance. You know, new injection pump, all new rubber stuff in the engine bay, gone through it. 
lift kit, tires, everything. And honestly, after I went through the whole truck, I've owned it for like 10 years. And I think all I've done was just basically like tires and oil changes, basic stuff like that. You know, I would, I've literally gotten in the truck and drove it over a thousand miles return trip with not a single problem. So they've been great. I've spent a few grand in other accessories, like getting air conditioning, four speed automatic, things like that. And kind of tinkered with it as I've gone with the upgrades. And honestly, right now I can get in it. I can drive it 80 miles an hour windows up on the hottest day of the year, you know, making ice cubes and it's awesome. And I probably got maybe 12 grand into it at this point in time for the entire vehicle and all of the upgrades. So um, I personally like the cuck V's, but honestly, any other platform, you can't go wrong with it. Find one that's clean. That's within your budget. That fits the purpose. I'd stay away from anything that has a cult following like first gen Bronco, Scouts, Wagoneers, Land Cruisers. All of those are stupid money. And honestly, I, I stay away just because I'm not interested in spending 50 grand to start with and owning some gem that you can't do anything with. So I like Blazers, you know, the, the big Broncos, Toyota pickups, stuff like that. Plain Jane, work truck toy basically all right thunderhawk hope that helped you out good luck with your search i don't know if there was one little slip there in just in in the the mindset versus the reality of the vehicle or if he's talking about you know it could be uh a cucv m1009 which is the blazer version that we were talking about most here um when he said carburetor there's no carburetor in a cucv because they're diesel um, but I think maybe he's blending the question into you can get vehicles from those years and maybe not a CUCV because I, I know Derek knows that. There's, there's no issue there. All right, so I, I want to give you a few things. One, we're talking about going all the way back to the 60s, but we're primarily looking at the 1009. Maybe my memory is off, but I believe the 1009s were made from 83 to 87, especially if we're going to limit to Chevy. Um, I don't think 1009s were made in the 70s, and I know they weren't made in the 60s. Uh, I could be wrong. Maybe there's another variant out there or something, but the 1009s that I worked on were all made from uh, 83 to 87, and I was working on them in 91, and they were in pretty rough shape. Now, soldiers, just to be blunt, here's the word some of you don't like. starts with F. Fuck shit up, okay? So I'm not putting down the vehicle. They are very rugged. They are... The here's I'll give you the upsides and I'll give you the downsides. They are incredibly easy to work on. Okay, that's the that's the one good side. Number two, you're always working on them. <laughs> but the, the the point being is that most of the critical components are cheap. You can get a technical manual, nine twenty three twenty dash two oh nine. I think is the technical manual. I don't know. Maybe that's the deuce and a half one, but you can get it for free. Uh, in a downloader, you can buy one very inexpensively. You can put it in some some sort of uh, water protection, and you can throw a toolbox in the in the back of your 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 1009 or your 1008 if you want the pickup version uh, back there with with you know a, a handful of spare parts that you would have a few hundred dollars into and a basic mechanics toolkit. And 99% of the time, if you are broke down on the side of the road within 30 minutes, if you're half decent as a mechanic, you will be rolling again. You know, I'm talking belts, hoses, some basic other parts and things like that. And, and, and it was designed to be that way. The other side of it, though, it's a one and a quarter ton blazer or pickup. And any 
one of those made by anybody that made the Cut V in the same time period, it's pretty much the same, other there may not be some accoutrements on the bumper with pendle hitches and things like that to it. Um, it but there's nothing really special about it. And then you have to ask yourself, do I want a diesel? Because you can find you know, gas versions of these vehicles that are civilian vehicles that don't come with some of the things that you need to deal with on a military vehicle. Okay, The other side of this is, like I started out with, soldiers jack stuff up, guys. And any single one of these, no matter how well it's been cared for, has been had the piss beaten out of it. And I'm telling you this again, I was working on vehicles that were around five to seven years old, getting them ready to simply turn them in, and there wasn't a one of them that we didn't have to put effort in just to turn it in to be turned over to National Guard troops. So that basically, as we turned one in, we got a Humvee. And we couldn't get our Humvees until we turned them in. So we would you know, work for a week and get like ten of them ready to go. This is a whole company's vehicles. You know, We'd roll ten of them down there, and they'd kick two of them back. Oh, this one has a small leak. It could be correct. And we just literally wipe that leak, right, and roll it right back in <laughs> so that they didn't see it, like, and pawn them and get them back in. And then they, they would release, when they took those in, you know, another shipment of Humvees to us because they were just sitting there staged ready to go to their companies. And so I have a love-hate relationship with the Cut V. From that, and that experience didn't last long. I mean, I was, I, I hit the ground in my, my first, you know, duty station, and I'm there, and we're going to deal with these things, and then they were gone. It was only a few, yeah, it was probably a month and a half, probably about six weeks of work to get rid of all of them. We had well over a hundred of the damn things. And while we were trying to get them ready, since we didn't have the Hummers yet, the drivers were still using them and still beating the shit out of them. Like, so, You know, maybe I'm a little jaded. But I will also say on the gearing and the speed, the Blazers have a pretty decent highway speed. It's the it's the 1008s, the pickups that don't. Or I'm wrong. I don't remember. They have a different gearing in the rear differential, and they are swappable. So if you have one, you're not dealing with the newer ones with the overdrive and all that, and you, you, you want more speed, and you'll have to look it up for yourself which way it goes, but you can swap, if you can find one that's basically junked, but it has a decent rear differential, you can swap them out. And they'll swap, and then that will, will give the other vehicle, whichever way it goes. I believe it's the Blazers there, and the pickup is the one that's slower. But if it's the other way around, it doesn't matter. You can do the swap. I also recommend you Google something called Steel Soldiers. There's a whole forum and community built around restoring these vehicles. And I'll see if I can find, I had old Grouch back when he was part of the council and on the show from time to time. I had him on about this very subject. I'll see if I can find that episode and add it to the show notes for you guys today. With that, let's hear about trees from Nick Ferguson. Hey guys, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com here to answer a question on planting and growing trees. This is from Zeb. He writes, good afternoon, can the trees in your fodder or fruit and nut package be planted among established other trees? And details, I purchased your fruit and nut package as well as the fodder package. Can I plant them in dense established trees with success? I have several black walnut trees. Will these affect any of the trees in your packages? I also have some low-lying areas that flood when it rains sometimes. Will this be a bad area to try to plant any of these trees? Thanks, Zeb. 
Um, well, there's your question, but there's or questions, but there's also another implied question that I feel the need to answer in general for the audience. So, first, yes, you can plant all the trees I sell in Dense Overstory with success. The trees and shrubs will grow extremely slowly or nearly stop growing altogether, but they will live. Fruiting species need fairly good sun exposure to create enough sugars to flower and fruit. The fodder trees will not produce well at all, really, if they don't have good amounts of light. Will the walnut trees affect their growth? Unlikely, but the berry um, probably needs to be planted further away from and uphill of the walnuts, just in case. Um, the flooding will not hurt the hybrid poplar or willow in the least, and they'll actually thrive in that kind of environment. They like wet feet and to be in areas that periodically flood. So, now that I've covered your specific questions, let's get to the implied question. How should you go forward with growing these trees if the only space is a dense overstory? And the answer is, you should do an assessment of your woodlot, selectively thin the worst trees and the diseased trees, and once your lot is thinned, you'll get more light to the new trees, and they'll grow well for you in some dappled light conditions with periodic full sun. Our goal with growing most plants is to get them at least four hours of direct sunlight. If you're in the south, then, you know, lean more towards four hours of morning light. If you're in a northern climate, then more towards four hours of afternoon sunlight. That would be great. So to recap, yes, you can plant in the shady area, but start looking at what trees should come down to open up space and light for the new ones. I mean, ideally, you do that first so that you can make sure that you're not dropping a tree on top of a brand new tree that you just planted in the ground. Um, I can almost guarantee that there are trees that can or should be dropped just for the health of your woodlot. Uh, just make sure that you don't plant the new tree right where the old one needs to fall. Hope that answered your question. I'll be shipping trees soon. We finally got our trees in from the grower, and also later this month, I'll be doing a quick trip up to Ohio for a consult. So if you're on the way up or back from Louisiana to Ohio, and from Ohio to Seven Springs Farm Supply in Virginia, I'll be going there to pick up some stuff. And you want to grab me for a consult, then shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com, and I'll see if I can fit you in. Do good things. Yeah, I'll, I'll just reiterate one thing when it comes to, to growing, you know, the fodder trees that Nick recommends when you get to the willow stuff. Wet feet and willow go together like peanut butter and jelly. Like, if you have a wet area and it's going to be difficult to do much with other trees, there's some other trees that will grow there, but they're not necessarily very productive. I believe there's a an oak variety, Schumann oak, something like there's an oak variety that does very well in swampy lands. It's a pretty good acorn tree. Uh, but willows will always do well with wet feet. They love it. They'll shallow ponds. They'll they'll literally go into that pond and colonize it and turn it into a marsh and eventually turn it into a wet area. Like they they love it, love it, love it, love it. Um, and then like I guess another thing you could look at is are there trees that you want to harvest, right? And then that creates what's called a glade, and then that maybe is where that you would. would 
would plant your next trees. And you could use some of these and maybe move some things out that are big enough to be a good timber or resource tree. And then, you know, the good thing to do always is when we cut down a tree, we plant at least one more. So that's just some thoughts there. Next up, let's hear from Nicole Sauce on dealing with dogs. Hey, everybody. Nicole Sauce here from Living Free in Tennessee and Holler Roast Coffee. This is a segment that is not based on a user question, but it's a story I want to share with y'all about dogs, packs, taking responsibility for the things you've committed to. And I wanted to give you a view of what happens when things don't always go right. I know it's a little bit of a departure from an expert segment, though, because I'm supposed to be an expert, right? Well, sometimes we're not an expert, and this is a situation where I've ended up reaching out for help, and I wanted to share the story so that if you have any similar issues in your household, you feel empowered to do the same thing. It all started about five weeks ago when the lowest man on the totem pole of my pack of dogs, there are three dogs who live here, came home after having injured herself really badly, uh, but she was able to come back. And it took her probably four to six hours from injury to get to my doorstep. And what the problem was is she had cut herself on barbed wire or something sharp in the woods. It was a very, very large cut and resulted in a trip to the emergency vet, a week of daily being put under to change the bandage, and then a big open raw area that we've been caring for ever since then. Needless to say, she was isolated from my other dogs in crates so nobody would mess with her. And then towards the end, she was really healing well. And we walk outside to do the daily visit to the bathroom, right? But trying to keep her from being really active. And we'd gotten to the point where the dogs were all, they're all, you know, walking together. Everybody's cool. Nobody's messing with her wound. I'd walk her with her cone off so that she could get a little bit of head free time and I could supervise to make sure she wasn't going to chew on this one area. It was great. We were probably two weeks away from her being totally healed. And then one morning on a walk, didn't realize that all the dogs were outside when I went out because I didn't communicate with the other people who live near me. And a fourth dog showed up. And my injured dog, Cece, barked aggressively at that dog because she does not like that dog when she realized that that other dog was outside. And this caused the other two who've been walking with us just fine to get amped up. And they ended up, one of them, the dominant dog, kind of snapped at Cece to tell her to chill out. The dog, the neighbor's dog, came down and looked like, what's going on, but didn't engage. And next thing I know, the two dogs who are part of the pack who are friendly with Cece were attacking Cece, the injured dog. And getting two dogs off of one dog is really hard, but managed to do that. But Cece got pretty hurt. It reopened her wound, gave her some additional wounds. I was able to stop the situation. But now, guess what? I have a situation that's never happened before where the other dogs attacked the weaker dog, which can be in an animal's nature, in a pack nature, to get rid of the weak one. They were amped up. It was hard to break it. I was not carrying a gun at that time because I was just on my own property, wasn't really worried about it. Had I had a gun, I could have at least shot it to make noise. And if it had escalated to where I had to defend one of the dogs or myself, I could have also defended myself, right? So that was a big mistake. 
There was no water near that by for me to dump on them because I wasn't near the hose. The only reason I was able to break them up is somebody else was outside and we were able to break the dogs up through CC in one of my outbuildings and close the door so she was protected and ended up taking her to the vet. She was stitched up in three other places. Her wound that was almost healed was opened up again and that put her back a few weeks on healing from that. And then there was tension. So here's where we're at now. The two dogs who usually hang out together are friendly around each other if we introduce them on leash, but if we let them play, they get a little snappish, and I'm concerned that that will turn into a real dog fight again, and we will have more injuries, and frankly, Nicole cannot handle any more injuries right now, so we've been keeping them separated, which is not making the situation better. I am throwing off tense energy, which makes my dogs on more alert, right, because it, it kind of freaked me out what happened there. And I certainly don't want Cece to get hurt again by the other dog in my household. And so the other dog in my household, when she sees Cece, is like, oh, I'm not supposed to touch that because mom's tense. I'm going to stay away. But then that means she's on alert, which could make it a bad situation again. And Cece, the dog who has never really engaged, who is low man on the totem pole, proactively growls and proactively will go after, like, towards the my other dog chestnut when she perceives that chestnut's getting amped up and and then that could of course if that were to happen unsupervised that would result in potentially another bad fight that cc's gonna lose and she's already injured right okay so i cannot live this way and i've seen a lot of people complain about dogs killing chickens and needing to put be put down a situation like this and needing to be put down i mean obviously i need to separate them for life right wrong there has been one fight It's been five days since then, and what I have done is make sure that none of the dogs come across each other unsupervised. And in my own house, I have crates, and one dog or another is crated because that keeps them safe. And they've gotten to the point where if one's in the crate and the other one walks by, they're they're cheerful to each other. So that's good. That doesn't mean I'm going to leave them unsupervised, though, because then it would be my fault that the dog got hurt. And this is what I wanted to talk about. It is my responsibility to deal with this situation. I need to evaluate if I'm doing something to make it worse, and if so, what? And it's very likely I am. And it's time for me, because I'm outside of my my dog training expertise zone, to get help. So what I've done is I've reached out to people in my area who know about trainers, identified who's the best trainer in our area, called him, And I called him yesterday. Today, we start training dogs to bring them back into a family atmosphere. And he's going to tell me what I need to do differently. And I am investing money in that rather than vet bills. I think a lot of times when we have animals in our houses, we don't always treat them or acknowledge that the nature of a dog is the nature of a dog, right? They're going to act like they act. And it's up to us to take responsibility to create a safe environment for them. And when a situation like this happens where we need help, it's easier to spend time talking about it with your friends, talking about it on social and complaining rather than deal with the situation. And then we're afraid often to take the steps necessary, which seem mean to retrain our dogs. So that's not going to happen here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work with this trainer. Got a really busy week. I'm head to Road Food Conference this coming weekend in Florida, which means I drive for like eight hours. I'm not going to be home for the dog then. My injured dog is going to a a kennel where she'll be safe for the weekend, and the kennel person knows how to care for her wounds because she's already done it, so that there's no chance the dogs come across each other while I'm not here to supervise. 
And then next week, we're going to hit it hard again with training. That's what you have to do when you're responsible for animals. I wanted to share that story because I'm a pretty good person with dogs. I'm not as good as Jack, but I'm pretty good with dogs. But I know I have weaknesses, and I know that emotionally I love my dogs, and they can sense what's going on. And I know right now, you can hear it in my voice, I'm amped up. If I'm amped up, they're amped up. And that's why I'm taking steps early to deal with the situation so I don't end up two years from now with a much worse situation that's much harder to retrain. Here's the deal, guys. When I priced out what it would cost to do this, it's not that much money. In my area, it's $45 an hour. I would have been willing to pay $200 an hour for this because I know if I get guidance in the right way and somebody helps me put a strategy out that I will be disciplined every day about doing it. And anyway, if you have situations where your animals are also in a bad way or they're misbehaving, rather than complain about it, rather than put them down, rather than rehome a problem and give somebody else that problem, Consider reaching out and getting professional help. It's a good idea to do that, and it's part of developing self-reliance. It's part of building skills, and it's part of taking responsibility for what you do. I hope this segment helps somebody. Maybe you can play it for a family member if there's hesitation to work through problems within your own dog packs in your house. Maybe it gives you hope for an animal you thought couldn't be retrained. Animals are trainable. They're infinitely trainable. It's very rare you've gone to the point where it's not reversible. But it does all boil back to us. And that's what I wanted to share with you today. I'll be back with another expert segment soon. Make it a great week. Um, This is one of those situations that really probably would never have happened with outside provocation. Nicole's dog's are not the most obedient dogs or anything, but they're pretty good at getting along together. Like she said, this is the first fight they ever had. I don't know how long she's had them all, but I was at her place five years ago, and she had all these dogs. So it's not like this is something that's chronic. But I want to explain what happened here, because it can happen anywhere, in any situation. It doesn't have to be just this dog comes along, in a situation where the dog can engage, like the outside dog, even though it didn't, it, it cre- created provocation. In fact, it often is the case that this, this type of thing among friendly packs can happen more if that other dog can't be engaged. So this is actually less likely than if that dog had, let's say, been on the other side of a fence. So this is why if you have dogs that are big on fence fighting, you know what fence fighting is, where the one dog, another dog, they can't get to each other, they run up and down the fence, pissed off at each other. You need to break that. And it's not the other person's responsibility to break it, your neighbor's responsibility. It's yours. And I deal with this. I had Charlie yesterday. We had to do some corrective training. There's a little chihuahua lives next door, and they're running up and down the fence and shit. And it was easy to deal with because Lucy didn't happen to be there. And what will happen, inevitably, in any of these tense situations the dog builds up energy, attack energy, call it that, and there's no place for it to go, so they turn on their pack mate. I saw this happen, and it was a very bad uh, beatdown that required quite a bit of vet work because of some stupid people who I threatened to break their necks for my neighbors. My neighbors do uh, rescues. They have mastiffs, and they have a pretty big... I, I. Pity the person that ever climbs that fence at night because there's about 11 of them in there and mastiffs. All right. 
Well, they don't. They they don't really go out and bother people, and they have gotten you know occasionally one or two has gotten out of their fence, and when they get out of their fence, you can walk up to them and pet them. They're a lot like Charlie, like that. As long as you stay out the fence, or as long as mom and dad let you in, you're good to go. But you don't come over the fence. Well, these idiots, these two young kids, they were you know like call them kids. They're in their twenties probably. We're walking down the road, and they started squealing and fucking with the dogs. And fortunately for them, the neighbor had recently realized there's, you know, this happens, and he had increased the height of the fence because I really think these idiots might have had those dogs come over that fence and kill them, the way they were provoking them. And the pack turned on kind of the weakest female member of the pack and tore her up pretty good. And I happened to be out there, and I told these people off, and the guy said something. I said, "Do you want me to come on the other side of this fence?" And put you across that fence, so what can happen to that dog just happened to you. Then they shut their mouth and they went down the road. And I, I yelled at them. I mean, usually I'm not this way, but I yelled, "Do not come back here! I will make sure you're arrested for what you just did." That's probably not what I would have done, but what you know, whatever de-escalates and maybe ensures we're not going to have this problem again. But that's exactly what happened. Those dogs were built up with all this energy. I have to do something. I have to do something. I have to do something, and it comes out. I saw it happen with Charlie and Max one time. It didn't go into a big thing, but we were trying to introduce Charlie, Lucy, and Max to, to my friend's dog. And we had we had already gotten the Max and Lucy thing done. That was easy. Charlie, the alpha, my friend's dog was kind of a full-grown pup. If you get who's still in that mode and doesn't understand like hierarchy and don't challenge the other dog, and so we're walking them on a leash together just around the property. And, you know, they kept trying to get to each other, and I wouldn't let them. And Charlie built up some energy, and he didn't really hurt Max, but he reached over and he pulled fur out of Max, grabbed some fur and yanked some fur. And Max hit him. It was, a, if you blinked, you missed it three times. It was a millisecond shot right across Charlie's nose and opened up two lines, two bleeding lines on his nose. We put him away, calmed everything down, tried it again. He did it again. He, and Max hit him. It was like a Grandmaster Splinter moment for you, you Teenage Mutant Ninja Stars, uh, Ninja Turtles uh, fans, right? You, you kid geeks, right? Like it was the like his his little two bleeding lines on his nose had stopped bleeding and dried up. He hit him in the exact same spot, like precision. But that was another instance of amped up, and I have seen this happen many times over the years dealing with dogs. That that amped up feeling, if there's no place for it to go. It will be expressed on something, and so it requires work. And I think Nicole's step of bringing in a professional to this situation to deal with it is the best course to take right now. Now, there's another problem here, and this is a problem that people that live in a community like Nicole does without fencing will always have to deal with. And even though you, this can happen when separated by fences, it's more likely to happen when not. And that is that the neighbor's dog can just come onto the property. And it's expensive to fence property, but I'm not living on property where I don't at least have some place that my dogs can run where I don't have to worry about them engaging with other dogs. Now, it's easy to say when you buy a property that's already fenced. And remember, we can still have... This kind of aggression turn on each other with the, with enough provocation on the other side, and then the other thing you need to know when you fence a property, okay, 
When you fence a property, it does not mean your dog can't get out. I have seen dogs, especially big dogs, like with a chain link fence, pull underneath the chain link. I've seen dogs go over five foot fences like they weren't there. The dog never got out, and when the dog was enraged, the dog got out. I've seen dogs get over a six foot privacy fence, especially if the 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 I guess you call them the cleats, the the, the horizontal uh, components of them are on the dog's side, right? You're kind of in a conundrum there. I put those on my side, the dog can use them to get up and out. I put them on the other side, it makes it easier for somebody to come in. So it's not a solution to itself, but keeping your dogs even in a subzone within your property and then having fence further out, that's even better if you can work out how to do it. I don't want to go on any longer with that. Let's hear about cooking fish from Chef Keith Snow. Hey, Chef Keith Snow with foodstoragefeast.com. John, I wanted to answer your question about freshwater fish. So John's question was basically the crappy and white bass are starting to become available in Texas. And I think it's really neat that you can um, harvest fish like that. That is awesome. So he's looking for a healthy way to eat them that's not just fried. Now, I, uh, like John, love fried fish. Um, quite a bit, but that can get old and, um, he's looking for more of a tasty and healthy option. So John, what I would do is think Spain and this is a very easy dish. It doesn't have many ingredients, but you do have to make sure that you use quality ingredients. So first thing you're going to take tomatoes. Now, I don't know when you're listening to this, if it happens to be when fresh tomatoes are available, perfect. Go into the garden and grab maybe three fresh tomatoes. Take out the core, slice them in half, and then gently squeeze them and try to remove as many of the seeds and some of the pectiny, uh, slimy stuff in the middle. Then toss the entire tomato, skin and all, right into a Vitamix, and then you're going to pulse it and just puree this mixture down. It doesn't need to be super smooth, but you don't want it chunky. It's not salsa, so it needs to be quite a bit smooth. Um, if you don't have local and nice seasonal tomatoes, you can use a can of um, diced tomatoes or even whole peeled tomatoes. Just drain off the tomato juice, toss them into the um, Vitamix or you know whatever using food processor, and then process them down to a puree. Now you're going to go over to your stove and place a at least a 10-inch skillet over a medium-low heat. Now give that a couple of minutes to heat up. Then you're going to use some high-quality extra virgin olive oil, and this is where it makes a really good um, decision to use you know quality oil. Don't use something like a you know canola or other cheap nasty seed oil. So use your best EVOO and put about three to four tablespoons of that in there and three cloves of sliced garlic. Don't mince it, but slice it. Toss it into the oil and you should let that sizzle, not very hard. Again, this has to be a medium low heat because if you burn the garlic, you're going to have to start over. So just cook that garlic and it should just be bubbling slightly for three to four minutes, what that does is infuse the oil with some really great flavor. At that point, you're going to take your pureed tomatoes, pour them in there, stir this mixture, season it with salt and pepper to taste, and then add one quarter teaspoon of smoked 
Spanish paprika. Now, you can find that in the spice aisle of most of your stores, and it has a lot of flavor, so I wouldn't advise using any more than a quarter teaspoon. So mix this all together and then cook it over medium-low heat. And what you want to do is evaporate all that moisture off of it, and it needs to get somewhat thick. Now, it doesn't need to burn on the bottom, but it also does not need to be soupy. So you want it to be quite thick. Once it's quite thick, you remove it from the pan and then pay attention to your fish. So there's several ways to use this mixture that you've created. Um, number one, you can just take that same skillet, put a little more oil into it, season your fish fillets, put them in there, cook them for a minute or two, um, turn them over, and then spoon on some of this sauce and cook the other side, and you've got a great meal. Another way you could do it is take your fillets, put them in a baking dish, uh, preheat your oven to 375, season them with salt and pepper, and then put your tomato mixture on top of them and put them in the oven. And it doesn't take much time. I mean, a, a fillet of bass or a crappie, those are pretty small fillets in most cases. So you're not talking all that much time in the oven. And this is a really tasty way to eat fish. It's not all that common, and that's what I like about it. So I hope you give it a try, and I hope everybody has a great weekend. wanted to encourage you to check out my website, foodstoragefeast.com. Thanks for what you do, Jack, and take care. It's a great dish, and you can go a lot of ways from it and with it using other other ingredients or other proteins and other fish and other seafood. That would be good with shrimp, right? That would be good with mussels. That would be good with just a I think that would be good on a on a sock as long as it wasn't a dirty sock, right? That would be delicious. But I do want to say a couple things here. Being from Texas and, and knowing, you know, there's certain fish that we target when I go out. To fish because they have high limits and they're easy to catch as long as you can find them. Crappie and white bass are very high on the list. Crappie have a very, not a very short, but a shorter season of when they're really easy to catch a lot of. White bass, if you know what you're doing, you have the right equipment, you can, you can probably put a limit of white bass in the boat any day of the year as long as the weather's not too bad. Cold, warm, hot, there's, they're gonna move. You know, it's not always when they're running up the streams like they're salmon and they're stupid and they'll eat anything that shines. It's not always that easy. But with a boat and a, and a depth finder and knowledgeable lake, you can catch white bass all the time. A limit on them is 25 to an angler. That's 50 fillets. So as you might imagine, I've eaten a lot of white bass. And I like white bass. I think it's a delicious fish. But if you said to me, well, what what is a better quality fish, a crappie or a white bass for eating a crappie? But what if you, crappie, but what if you, crappie? Crappie is a delicious, high-quality, mild, light-colored fish with no real uh, off-putting bloodline or uh, fat, off-putting fat in the fillet. Now, you know me. I love fat. Salmon fat, yum. White bass, I'll admit, the fat in beneath the bloodline in white bass is a little bit off-putting in flavor. That's one of the reasons so many people fry it, because when you fry it, you don't notice it and you don't care. So there's other things we can do here that will also do the same thing and think flavor and texture, which is why Keith's recipe was so good. We're, change, we're bringing acidity to the party there. We're giving some different textures. We're giving some different flavors. So we're not all focused in on one thing. You know what else does that beautifully? Tacos, or if you are of the keto persuasion, um, 
you know, a leaf wrap lettuce type taco or just simply taco minus the shell. So it's not really a taco, more taco-esque plate, right? So you can season these fish with something as simple as some chili powder, salt, pepper, and cumin. And then if, especially if you get, again, texture. So maybe we, we chop up some cherry tomatoes. We get them in the skillet till they just begin to sort of cook and render out a little bit so they're nice and warm. And then we do like a, uh, a slaw, like do whatever you want, but like a slaw that is typical of something put on a fish taco and a little bit of like cotija cheese. And when you cook the fish, kind of break it up and, and put that on a plate. Now here's where you get, you know, certain things that are good to do with white bass and not. White bass, when you're cooking the whole filet in a pan, is kind of easy to overcook. If you kind of, you know, break it up once it's breakable and get it out and make a taco, you won't care even if you did a little bit. I love to do blackened fish. You try to do blackened fish with striped bass. It's one of the best thing you ever ate. White bass looks like little striped bass. You do a blackened white bass, and it just it overcooks. You can't really get a blackened white bass. The size of the fillet and the the meatiness. So you got to limit what you do with it. But grilled. Here's another thing to do with white bass. Just just uh, fillet them. Leave the scales, leave the skin, leave everything on them, and grill them, and then season them with a base, and just cook them. We call it a white bass on the half shell, on the grill. So you put skin side down, cook them till they're cooked through. And I'm going to give you a baste that is fantastic on this, and just combine it with my item of the day, because my item of the day is a basting brush. So I usually do this at the end. I'll do it here, because it kind of all fits together. I use basting brushes made by a company called Zycome, Z-I-C-O-M-E. You can find them at tspaz.com. You can go to the Survival Podcast today and just scroll down. You'll see them right under today's episode. You get four of them for about eight bucks. Why do I even care about this? Because they're the only basting brushes that are not a complete piece of shit that I have ever found. This is the problem. If you are using hot grilling techniques and you're using something more like a barbecue mop, something that's like a, a cotton or other other material like that, then what happens is inevitably you, you end up singeing it, burning it, causing problems when you end up touching the grill. If you use any other of the silicon brushes that I've found, they are designed so the head comes off. And eventually, between heat and washing and cleaning, the head falls off. And then it doesn't work, and then you throw it away and you yell at it. These are made from a solid mold of silicon. The bristles, the head, and the handle are one. They never fall apart. I've had a set for seven years. They're still like brand new. When you're done with them, you can throw them in the dishwasher. Now, what I added to my review, though, is one of my favorite go-to basting sauces. And this on any fish on the half shell. You can do that with largemouth bass. You can do it with crappie. You can do it with any fish that you want. Catfish, I would tend to cut the skin off and, and not do it on the half shell because slimy skin. But it's three tablespoons of soy sauce, one tablespoon of Worcestershire sauce, two tablespoons of hot sauce of your choice, Tabasco, Cholula, whatever. I like Cholula for this. And Cholula makes a lime cilantro hot sauce that's really good in this. Uh, five tablespoons of jalapeno-infused olive oil. Make your own or buy it. It's up to you. And then five tablespoons of white wine. And one tablespoon of mustard. And you don't need your fancy mustard, plain old yellow. And that's about the only thing I use plain yellow mustard for is this type of thing. You don't like mustard? I don't care. Do it anyway. You'll never taste it. The mustard is what's called an emulsifier in this. Put all of that, and it's all written down. You don't have to write it down. Just go look at the review. You don't want the brushes. I don't care. Get this 
recipe. You put it in a little ball jar and shake the crap out of it. Sit it down. Wait 10 minutes and look at it. If it stays mixed, if it doesn't separate between the liquids like the Worcestershire sauce and the soy sauce and the oil, it's good. If not, give it a little tiny more mustard and shake it again. We're trying to make an emulsion. So we want everything to stay together so that when we base something with it, it's not oil floating off and the other things staying there. You got it? We want all that flavor in one place joining the party together. If it separates in a day, you don't care. But if it separates in 10 minutes, it's not what you're looking for. So shake it up. and Whatever you don't use, you can put it away in the refrigerator, bring it out, let it come to room temperature before you use it again. Shake it up. Take your fish, little salt and pepper, cook it on the grill, and baste it with this. If you're confident in your ability to not have fish stick to the grill because you have a good, well-seasoned grill, a beautiful thing to do with this is baste it and flip it onto the, the, the flesh side for just a few moments and let it crisp up. Flip it back over, hit it one more time with the baste, and then take it off the grill. You could do that with any fish, much like the recipe Keith gave you, and it's going to be fantastic. And by having that acidity in this and the chili pepper and the soy and the Worcestershire, that little bit of kind of darker meat on the white bass will just kind of like infuse with everything else and you won't really notice it. If you just bake white bass with like butter on it, then you're going to find that grayish looking part of it is just not so good to eat. One more thing on white bass. When you do your fillets, skin on, skin off, I don't care. Put them in a bucket and get a hose sprayer or a sprayer in your sink. Spray the crap out of them. You'll see a lot of kind of fat come off them, like a white kind of bubbly foamy. Put your hand on them and jump all that water off. Do that two or three times until they stop foaming up, and you'll have a lot better results with your white bass. I didn't plan on going that long. Let's hear about what to do when your business slows down from Tim Toolman Cook. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's get right at it. This week's question comes from Matt on Telegram, and he asks... When self-employed, how do you handle or plan for when the workload or calls start to slow down? Okay, Matt, uh, this is one of those things. It seems to happen to most entrepreneurs. Don't panic. <laughs> uh, the first tip I would say, and I'm sure this is one Jack would have said as well, but have a have a calling, a text, or an email list. So, you know, don't hate money. Keep contacts of all your customers, and if times get slow, you can always, you know, without being too pushy, send out a, uh, you know, a text or an email, a social media post, or just call and say, hey, you know, so and so, I'm going to be in this area doing some work, or I happen to just, you know, word it this way: I unexpectedly have a week where a customer canceled. Is anyone looking to have any work done? And quite often, if you've, you know, if you've started building a community of customers already, you're going to shake something out of the tree. Uh, next. Save for the lean times. And this is one of those things. It's more of a do as I say, not as I do. Because when I first started, I basically started from nothing with nothing. And I wish I'd have done it a little bit different. But, you know, if, if you're starting something, start it as, say, a part-time side hustle and build up that rainy day fund so that you have enough to, you know, pay a month or three months worth of bills at least so that the lean times don't scare you and don't weigh on your, uh, you know, <laughs> psyche so much. Just if you have a little bit of money in the bank, it'll make those slow times or, you know, lean times just a little easier to go on. 
Uh, next, I would say work on your online presence. So if you got downtime, this is the time to start building a social media presence. You know, start an Instagram page or a Facebook page or get out on Nextdoor. You know, any of the things where your potential customers are going to be. Build yourself a website. If you don't have a website, you should have a website. Just have some way for people to find you through Google or through email, whatever it happens to be. But, you know, if you have that downtime, take your time, build up a social presence online. Next, try learning a new skill or an improving an existing one. This is something the first year I was running my handyman business, I tried to do quite a bit of. But when you find yourself down with nothing to do, and you're thinking, you know what, I'd like to try this new service or that new service. Or, you know, last time I cleaned windows for somebody, I wasn't really happy with how they turned out, even though they were. Take your time and practice. Spend an afternoon cleaning your own windows. Or, you know, one time I wanted to learn how to put metal siding and metal roof on a building. I had a buddy who was doing it. I said, listen, I've got no work. Can I volunteer with you for a couple of days? I spent the time. He ended up paying me, but it, you know, it doesn't matter even if you don't. Spend some free time and learn some new skills. Find some people that know things or practice yourself, whatever it is. Uh, another thing you can do is try offering a new or an add-on service. So if, you know, I, I, I hate to always pull in from the handyman realm, but that's what I know. But if you're, say, cleaning gutters for somebody, why don't you also advertise like uh, shrubbery trimming or, uh, you know, pressure washing, uh, doing house pressure washing, yard work, whatever it is, just try to try to find something that's still in your wheelhouse that'll still attract the same type of customers, but it might be something new that you haven't tried before. You just never know because, you know, if if, if I thought I was going to be where I am right now, starting at the beginning of when I started with my business, I don't think I ever would have predicted it. Your business ends up quite often in places you don't think. And a lot of times the best way to build your business is just trying something new. Uh, how about, and this, this goes against what you might think, but you know, during lean times, it might be time to spend a little bit of money on advertising, you know, some selected, uh, social posts that push it to the people, because unfortunately it's a pay to play model right now. And if you want to get your ad or your post in front of the right eyeballs, sometimes, you know, 50 to a hundred dollars spent on some, unfortunately, Facebook ads can be the way to go. And then the last thing I would say is enjoy the slow time. You know, work really comes in cycles and seasonal rhythms. The first year I started, you know, August come along and I thought, oh my goodness. I, I remember telling Becky, I'm like, we have no, there's no work coming in. What's going on? Well, it's the back to school time, but you don't realize it, you know, in late March, early April is the same way, although it's getting less and less. So the more customers I have, but you know, enjoy the slow time, take a little bit of time off, take a breather, you know, make hay while the sun shines. So you know, there's going to be times when you're so busy that you can probably work seven days a week. I don't say do it all the time, but do it while you can so that you can fill those coffers and then enjoy, you know, and if this is your first year, don't panic because it's normal. After you get into year two and especially into year three and you start to recognize those cycles, it won't panic you so much, but just enjoy the slow time a bit. It will pass. Okay, guys, I hope that helped. If you have other questions for me, you know, generator related, uh, entrepreneurship related, handyman, house renovations, any of that kind of stuff, send them along to Jack. 
send them to me through social media, whatever it is. I'd love to do a segment for you here on the expert council. I always love answering your questions. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, the absolute easiest way is to run by toolmantim.co or come by the YouTube channel Thursday and Sunday evening, Thursday night, 7 PM mountain time, Repairedness, the art of home maintenance, when help isn't around the corner, we take a deep dive into all the systems of the home, what to stock, the skills to learn, tools to buy, the whole works, and then Sunday evening, 7 o'clock mountain as well, I interview somebody interesting, somebody from preparedness, entrepreneurship, the handyman field, whatever it happens to be, I sit down and have a conversation and learn something from them. So drop by, interact in the audience, and check out the workshop podcast. That's it for me this week, guys. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. Real quick, what I love about this question and Tim's answer is that these are both people, the person that asked the question and the expert that answered it, that I could work with. That I could work with. I could try to help improve their business. It, what it makes me think of is people that I gave up on, even though they were willing to pay me as a consultant. I used to walk into to companies And they'd say, we know, we need some help getting more business. And I would start having the discussion with the, the stakeholders. You know, it'd be one guy that's an owner. It'd be a small group uh, of key employees, depending on the size of the entity. And as soon as one of them said something, I, I didn't do this initially. I want you to understand, I'm not a jerk all the time, right? I'm a jerk when I need to be. And so in my beginnings of consulting, and I've done consulting throughout almost my entire career. Because even when we were doing other things, we would still, we were pretty big at multitasking. And consulting was something I and, and many of my partners were really good at. And if you can get paid for something and be good at it, then you should probably do it. And they would say something like, but when things pick up. And I used to kind of talk around it and keep going. And then I realized something. When I was dealing with, I didn't care if it was a $10 million a year company or a $100,000 a year sole proprietorship. The minute those words were spoken, the best thing for me to do was to leave until those words stopped being spoken, until reality had set in that there was a problem. Because what they were saying is, the problem's not us. We want you to help us do better, but we're not the problem. The market's the problem, the economy's the problem, what have you. Those people, no matter how hard you push, they're never going to do what you tell them to do, and then they're going to complain that it didn't get better yet. Well, you don't wait for it to get better. You make what you're doing better. So I just wanted to point that out, and I love the tips that Tim gave. Big time, make sure every customer is in a database. And when you are slow, reach out with a special. Reach out with something that's going on. Reach out with an idea. Hey, did you think about the fact spring's coming up? It's probably a good time if you didn't get it done in the fall to have those gutters cleaned if you're a handyman. It's easy, it's fast, it's simple, and a lot of people would prefer to pay you to do it than do it themselves. Or they're like, you know, I, I need this weekend. I need to clean the gutters, but I also need to do this and that and this and that. And if they can make one of those problems go away for 50 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever you charge to clean gutters out, done. Done, because even if they know they could do it, and that's the thing about the handyman business, guys, most of your business is going to come from older people or people that don't have the knowledge. Call that half your business. The other half of your business and the people that are going to give you more business and pay you better are the ones that absolutely positively could do it themselves, but they have better things to do with their time or they have too much on their plate and they want to outtask a thing so that they can just check that off and say it's done. And it's worth money to make that go away. And those are the people that have shit that needs doing. 
they're sitting there going, I need to, do, and I'm in that mode right now, spring. Every spring, I'm in this mode. I'm so glad I didn't do a regular spring workshop this year. I went early. It's off the table. I don't have it distracting me. But I'm like, I got this, I got that, I got this. I want to put an outside, um, basically like a, a, an outside, inside, like a, almost like an aviary, I guess. Really simple, stick-built, framed out 16 by 8 on the front side of my duck coop. The duck coop is 16 by 8. I want to, I want to expand the footprint. And I basically want it all screened in, big old door, and that way the ducks can be all the way inside or they can be inside, outside, and protected from predators because we're building the flock back up. And I need more floor space because ducks poop a lot. And can I build that framed out, sticked out thing? Yes. Am I going to do it? No. I'm going to do part of it. I have a bunch of scrap metal roofing around. I'm going to have the guy come in that's doing some other work for me right now, our new handyman. I'm going to have him frame it, hinge the door, Put the roofing that I have on it and go away, and I will decide what to do with the roofing that I can't cover. I'm not sure if there's going to be any open roofing or not. It doesn't have to be completely roofed anyway. Um, in fact, maybe it's better that it's not. Maybe it's better the sun gets in somewhere. So I might put in some of the clear roofing over those. I think there's two panels maybe I'll have to add based on what I have already of the steel roofing. Uh, I will do the hardware cloth. Uh, because I, And I have a big old roll of it, and I'll do hardware cloth on the lower level, and the higher level I'm going to do more of like uh, some goat fencing type stuff just to keep critters and animals out. Low level, that way babies, when I'm doing certain things with babies, they can't get out at night without mom with them. Right? So I'm not going to do that even though I can. Now imagine this scenario. I'm, instead of me having already made that decision that I'm going to have this other guy do it for me, I'm sitting around and I'm thinking to myself, Ugh, I got plants to start. I got to top the beds. I got to muck out the duck house. I got to make compost. Uh, I got to, once the fencing goes in that we're going to keep the ducks off the porch with, I got to pressure wash the porch. I've got another project. I've got to get things planted. I've got to prune the trees. I really need to get that, that exterior coop done. And, and I get a text. Uh, I have a couple days open this week. Are there any projects you need? You don't think I'm going to pull at least one of those out and say, Hey man, can you do this? Of course I am. You have like, it is much easier to get business from someone you've already done business with than get somebody to, to give you business the first time. Never forget that. All right, so let's go into mine today, and I, I definitely want to kind of talk about this at, at a little bit higher level. People, since I asked this question on social media today, several have said this would make a good standalone show. I'll try to make it a seven-minute segment so we can get wrapped up today. Um, But why do people trust known malevolent liars? And I am talking about your government and your media, and I am, I am referencing Ukraine, but we're not going to talk about Ukraine at all today. And again, I just want the only thing I'm going to say about Ukraine is, again, when I give you the Russian perspective, I'm not saying Russia's right. I'm saying there's two sides to this story. You're being given one, and the one you're being given isn't 100% accurate by itself. I'll say, like, here, here's another example. There's a, there's a Holocaust memorial that was reported with, with fervent, you know, foaming at the mouth and clutching of pearls that Putin is so evil he blew up the memorial. Well, an Israeli journalist that's on the ground where this is going on, which is you should probably listen to those people more, went and took a picture of it and said, it's still here, nobody touched it. I don't hear a lot of retractions. We just go on to the next lie. You know, Miss Ukraine is defending Ukraine and she's dressed up like a soldier carrying an airsoft gun. All this shit, right? Lie after lie after lie. 
I'm not surprised they're lying. I'm surprised how many of you believe it. So here was the poll I posted on MeWe, and because other sites don't have as much options as MeWe does with polls, I've posted different variants of it on other ones. But I said, which best describes people who were abused and lied to for two years, locked in their homes, had their jobs taken away, forced to cover their face, etc., who now know that it was all done based on lies from their government and their media, who now 100% trust their media and government about a foreign war? I think it's a reasonable question. Here was the, and I was being a little bit tongue in cheek because I wasn't planning on using it today. And then as it came in and some people made some comments, I thought this would be a good subject today. Option one, A, they have Stockholm Syndrome. B, they are the product of our modern indoctrination education system. C, the average IQ in America is under 100. What do you expect? Uh, D, they live in a childhood fantasy world where every situation has a good guy and a bad guy. E, all four of the above. F, I don't understand this question. I need to get back to watching the news to see what is going to happen next. Don't you know Putin is trying to start World War III by bombing statues and hospitals? That actually got four votes, and I think those people are just being funny, okay? Um, uh, Mosh Pit says statues, hospitals, schools, and puppies is what he's really bombing. Um, number one answer there. All four of the above. Stockholm Syndrome, Modern Indoctrination, Low IQ, and Live in a Child Fantasy World. All of them. I think that's right. That's where I was going when I put it there. But the second most votes on me we came from, they are the product of our modern indoctrination education system. Before I go on from there, let's bring in one of the other places I ran the poll. Running the poll on Gab, I only had the ability to put in four multiple choices. I couldn't do a fifth or a sixth, so I couldn't put the plucky little thing at the end or all of the above if I wanted to really see what was going on with the four main ones. Stockholm Syndrome got 11% of the vote. The product of modern indoctrination slash education, 54%. Average IQ under 100, what do you expect, 14%. And they live in the child fantasy world where every situation has good guy and bad guy, 21%. So you're two absolute leaders, the child fantasy and modern indoctrination. And you're absolute winner with more votes than the other three combined, modern indoctrination. I want to break these down and why I used them in the first place. One, I want you to look up something, and I'll put a link to a PDF that was done by the, the Rockefeller Organization, Rockefeller Foundation in 2010, and it's part of a larger report. It's a subset of the report. It'll start, I believe, on page 18. I'll put it in the notes, which, whichever one it is. It's called Locks, Operation Lockstep. Operation Lockstep. And it was a scenario where there was a pandemic, in this case an influenza pandemic, and even though you know sources like USA Today has proven as disinformation that it's from the Rockefeller playbook that this is what's going on, um, USA Today bases their claim that it's false information not on what it says, but on the fact that there is no Rockefeller playbook. In other words, there's not a book called the Rockefeller playbook. There's only this report that has this information in it put out by the Rockefeller Foundation. You see how they're getting creative with their fact-checking. But if you read, it's only a few pages of the whole thing, and you read the scenario, and it's written as though it happened, and here's what happens. You see that the conclusion is that people will push back 
You will only be able to go so far, but people will be their own enforcers and will accept some piece of it, no matter how much they decide to push back against, as being true, and they will cling to it, and they will become more able to be controlled by more oppressive government in time, and this is the plan. And when you read it, it reads exactly like what happened during the COVID pandemic. Down to timelines of how long it would last, each phase of it. So, to, and to me, what you're describing there is identifying with your oppressor. That is Stockholm Syndrome. The product of our modern indoctrination system, since that's a clear winner, I'm going to come back to it. I want to talk about the average IQ in America under 100 and why that question may not have been taken the, or that option may not have been seen the way I meant it. But a lot of people said there's a lot of people out there they know are really smart and they believe this shit. So that's not really, they couldn't say all four in the other poll because they don't include that one. Otherwise they would have. They would include the child fantasy, the indoctrination, and the Stockholm Syndrome. So they would leave this one out. Two things at, at this. One is the power of collective thought. If I have enough dumb people in society, right, and I can get them all to believe something, I've talked about this before, it sounds a little metaphysical, but it's true, thoughts have weight, and, and that they are a thing. There's something projected out of us when we think, and if you put enough of something, you create mass, and it creates gravity, and it can pull things toward it, and I believe that works with thoughts as much as it works with anything else. So if I can convince, you know, if the majority of people are not exactly smart that this is true, they'll pull even many of the smart people with them. And many of the really smart people, let's say people with IQs up around 130 and higher, 2-3% top intelligence, measured by intelligence, a lot of those people have been so well indoctrinated by the education system that they have implicit trust, and even though they're not stupid, they behave stupidly. So that pushes us back to B, the indoctrination. But there's something else at play that I think is bigger. The average IQ in America is a 98. Okay? 98. That's if you take everybody, you take a thousand people off the street at random, you give them all IQ tests, you will get an average score of 98, which means, you know, half the people are dumber and half the people are smarter, roughly. It's, it con it's not an exact median, exact middle point, but it's close. Okay. Here's the thing about that. I don't actually believe that that statistic is accurate. I believe when most people take an IQ test, they're told it doesn't count toward your grades or anything. They're kind of forced into it or what have you. And that you can have a person test out with a 90 IQ. And if they take the same test and they apply themselves and they actually take it seriously, they might test out at like 110. And if it's a legitimate 90 and a little legitimate 110, that is a huge variance in innate intelligence in the individual. I think there's apathy toward these IQ tests. So then you're saying, well, they're not really that dumb, so doesn't that circumvent the question? Absolutely not. It means they're lazy thinkers. The average IQ being 98 is not indicative of the average person actually being stupid. It's an indicative of them being actually lazy when forced to think. They could do better. That was my point on that one. I think that they have been indoctrinated to do that as well. And especially if you add Stockholm Syndrome to it. And it's just easier to accept the explanation that fits my bias. And that that causes IQ scores to go down. You theoretically can't raise someone's IQ score in a week. 
But I promise you, if you took a group of people, got an aggregate average IQ score, and then gave them a week and said, listen, we're going to do this again, and we're going to incentivize you to do better. You don't study. We're going to, everybody that does at least 10 points better than the last time they took the test gets $100. Your aggregate IQ is going to go up more than 10 points. And if, if it was an accurate measurement, that should not be possible in a week's time. Okay? Child fantasy land. This is part of indoctrination, not so much the education system, but the media indoctrination. Like I said, growing up and watching every TV show, black hat, white hat, good guy gets the girl and rides off in the sunset. Our minds want to believe when there is something as tragic as war, that one side must be the bad guy. Surely, two bad guys wouldn't go to war with each other for just power and control. There's no way that would happen. Some side must be the, the innocent victim. And some guy must be the James Bond villain. <laughs> this is juvenile. But it also, this is why the answer, if you, if you take away all of the above of modern indoctrination, is, is, is the one that got the most votes because the crowd is right in this instance. That child fantasy land is reinforced by indoctrination at the educational level. People being taught in history the absolute rightness of one side in a conflict, and almost inevitably, gee, it's the side that won. Even if the bad guys, like, I don't know, the Huns or something, right, or the, the, the Khans, right, that were you know multi generational centuries of power and control. And eventually, it fell because good always wins, and they're always the bad guys. And there's no possible way we could be provocateurs. I've said it before; I'll say it again. There is no good guy and bad guy in Ukraine. There's shades of gray on both sides, and our involvement has made a bad situation far worse. We have so many scumbags in this country trying to cash in on Ukraine. There is billions in natural gas profits alone to be had in Ukraine. And you have a country not capable of developing its own resources. That's a big part of this. In other words, you can have massive amounts of gas to be extracted. But if you can't extract it, it might as well not be there. So there is a fight. Who's going to actually control it? I said on my interview with, with Nicole, or my uh, Tuesday chat with Nicole and, and John, and I guarantee you nobody's told you this on TV. I guarantee you there are canals that come out of Ukraine into Crimea, which was annexed by Russia in 2014. And when that annexation happened, instead of Ukraine saying to, to Crimea and Russia, why don't we come up with a method of compensation for this water? We want to charge you by you know the gallon or whatever. There's going to be some cost for us to maintain this and give this resource to you. That's a totally reasonable position. Instead, they poured, they literally backed up concrete trucks and poured them in the canals and cut Crimea off from the water. Now, my, my gut is, I don't know this, this is speculation, my gut is that probably wasn't a fully internal Ukrainian decision. There was probably outside influence from us in there. Did you know this? Right? Did you know that the reason, the, the region that all this shit started over in the East is historically Russia? And it was just pushed into Ukraine. Did you know that a huge piece of what we call Ukraine today used to be Poland? And it wasn't settled by Poland and Ukraine that that would happen. 
We decided that was going to happen. When I say we, I'm talking everybody in the game through and after World War II decided that. Stalin and then, you know, Churchill and, and freaking Roosevelt basically agreeing to let Stalin have everything he wanted on his side of the thing. That way we could create this entire illusion of an Iron Curtain and a Cold War that would last 35, 40 years. Bad guy there, bad guy there. Hey, why? And both sides, isn't it amazing? Both sides are always the good guys. No. This is my question here. Not who's right, not who's wrong, not even who's more wrong. Why do any of you, why do any of you trust the people who lied to you for two and a half years? And it makes me think of when Muhammad Ali, and they tried to draft him into the Vietnam War, and he said he was a conscious objector and he was not going to go, and then he was labeled as a commie and a pinko and a coward, as though Muhammad Ali is a coward and afraid of a fight, because that's just what you do to people that break from the herd. You just There's a template for what you do to them. And he was his, his basic, I can't quote him or anything, right? I'm a pretty good speaker. I can't speak like that guy did at his height. Um, but basically, why would I go kill the yellow man? They're not my oppressor. I don't have equal rights right here at home, and you want me to go to this foreign land and kill a man that never did nothing to me. That's called critical thinking, folks. You know, what if they had a war and nobody showed up? We don't need to be involved in this. We already are involved far too much. We caused this. And yet, we'll turn right around. And I'm not just talking about the idiots. I'm not talking about the guy that's still walking around with three masks on and an anal swab up his ass and hiding in his toilet paper bunker he built in his house. I'm talking about people that, even if not from the beginning, within a few months went, okay, this is bullshit. Cloth masks do not work. Right? This vaccine should not be forced on people. We do not need to be closing businesses, locking down homes. Six foot is our, like, realize all this is a lie. They realize it. They woke up. This is all a lie. And then they live with screaming at people themselves, like me. Right? Remember our quote of the day today? They, they got on board with Charles Pagoy. He who does not bellow the truth when he knows the truth, makes himself the accomplice of liars and forgers. They got on board with it. They said, they're being lied to, and they were censored, and they were attacked, and they were shut down. They lost their accounts on social media, or they got in Facebook jail, or whatever, and they kept saying the truth. And they kept saying, look at the CDC line. Look at the government line. Look at the president's line. This one and the last one, guys. Look at look at Fauci lying. Look at CNN lying. Look at Fox News lying. Look at MSNBC lying. And now this thing comes, oh, you're just a horrible person if you don't understand that Putin's the bad guy. I stand with Ukraine. And a lot of people saying they stand with Ukraine couldn't even stand up for the right to breathe fresh air for the last two fucking years. And now you're going to stand up and say you stand on one side of a war? You're a chicken hawk. You're a chicken hawk. You're for the war because you don't have to fight it. You're just, a lot of these people saying that shit, hand them an AR or an M16 or an M4, put a suit on them and say, get on the boat, you're not part of the United States Army because we're not going to get in this military conflict directly, but there's a mercenary force you can join, pick your shit up and go. None of these motherfuckers are going. No, not a one of them. They cheer, they put a little flag up in their profile, they're freaking chicken hawks. And they can't critically think. Even a lot of people that believed all the COVID BS have now realized it was a lie. And they're like, oh, they lied about that, but now they're telling me the truth. 
What do you think it is? Interested to hear from the larger audience than just social media. Is it Stockholm Syndrome? The product of modern indoctrination? The low average IQ, not just due to stupidity, but apathy and thinking? Childhood fantasy world where every situation has a good guy or a bad guy? All of the above? Or do I need to get real and understand that Putin is trying to start World War III by blowing up statues in hospitals and kindergartens? Which one do you think it is? With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. And uh, we don't have much to say today because I already talked about the item of the day, but you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You want to be a member of the MSB, this is a great time to join. Mexico22 is the discount code. Use that to get $35 a year instead of $50 a year on your membership. I will be back tomorrow without back with Jack. I will try to stay out of this world we were just in. I know it's all going on. I said I was going to talk about the State of the Union. You know, screw it. Biden's an incompetent dementia patient, and he said a lot of shit that wasn't true, and he made an ass out of himself. And Nancy Pelosi looked really freaky, rubbing her hands together when he was talking about American soldiers dying due to cancer from burn pits. There, I've covered it. That's it. You can hear it repackaged a hundred times. It's all going to be the same shit. Biden bitched about inflation, but he's responsible for inflation. Took no responsibility. Take every other problem, say that. That's gone. Tomorrow, we're talking solutions actions, things that we can do in our own backyard without back with Jack. And uh, I will catch you then. That will be a live stream. No live stream. There will be a live stream tomorrow. If you want to catch, it'll probably be around 9.30, 10 a.m. You know what to do if you haven't done so already. Get the Telegram app. Subscribe to the alert channel for TSPC. There's a link in every episode. Get on that. You'll only get the, the alerts from me. And I always send out an alert before they start so that you don't miss it. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. They pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way